Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is happening, gang? We have got an awesome episode for you today, the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. In today's episode, we begin our two-part look at roster construction in the NFL. More specifically, today's episode focuses on building out the 90-man squad that you bring with you into camp. Next week, we'll focus on the cut down and the painful process of getting to 53. But this one's all hopes and dreams. This is all about the guys that you take with you into camp to see what you got. And so we've kind of dealt with a few of these things in prior episodes. But we've never looked at it from this angle before. So we look at, okay, here are your core players. Here's how you've added some players through free agency. Here's how you handle the draft. But then in this episode, we take a hard look at undrafted free agents, what that recruitment process is like, how we bring those guys in, what's Bill's philosophy on that, and how that recruiting works in the NFL. And then secondarily, we take a deep, deep, deep look into kind of what do you want in that back half of the roster? Are you truly looking for guys who can make the team? Are you looking for warm bodies? And we get Bill's kind of unique perspective on that all the while living to Bill's philosophy on roster construction. And then finally, we take a look at practice squads. What are practice squads? Why are they important? How do they work kind of globally in the NFL? And then more specifically, how important they are in this COVID season. So we are super excited to bring this one to you today. This is the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and this is our look at building a 90-man roster. My lamp is victorious and lit. How about you guys? Affirmative. I wish I could say it was blue, but it's red. (laughs) Hey, look at that. All right. Well, hey, gang, we're back with another exciting episode of the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. And in today's show, we're going to do something and this week and next, something I've always wanted to do. We're going to look at kind of how you build the roster. This first episode is going to look at sort of building the 90-man roster. And then the next episode, we're going to kind of focus in on the whittle down to 53. So as we like to do on the show, we know you probably watched hard knock hard knocks stay up to the last minute on various permutations of how this process works but as we like to do on the pod we're going to dispel some myths and go into great detail illuminating the planning the analysis and the execution of assembly and nfl roster so if you guys are ready let's do it all right let's go Fire away. All right. So, Bill, what is your overall approach from a roster construction perspective? I know we've gotten into it a little bit in past episodes, but then kind of if you could broadly give that sense. And this is something we haven't touched on and something I'm really curious about. In terms of building out to 90, what are you really looking for? Well, you're looking for the 90 best players that you can find within the context of the rules uh, both for roster building and the salary cap. That's the textbook definition of it. In practice, at the end of every season, whenever that ends, if it's in the playoffs or after the Super Bowl or in not making the playoffs, um, we believed in giving everybody a week off. 
Now, they had some assignments during that week off, but get out of the office, go see your family, go away if you have the opportunity to do so, decompress. Because the last game of the season and, and le- for 31 teams is a bummer. You've lost. So you don't want that uh, hangover to affect your judgment. So after a week, everybody would come back to the office and we would sit down and begin an exercise <clears throat> where we took the approximately 60 players that you ended it ended with, um, 53, whoever ended up on injured reserve, and the in those days the eight-man practice squad, um, you would sit down and say, okay, um, who of these players uh, is of no value to us? And that would be a discussion between the assistant coaches, the head coach, the personnel staff, myself, and then the head coach and I would get together and really winnow it down. It wasn't a long discussion. Uh, You pretty much know who you want to bring back and who you don't. Um, So that list would go up. Uh, Keep in mind... <clears throat> excuse me, then in December, in January and February, until after the Super Bowl, all rosters are frozen. So you don't make any moves during this period of time. But but you do make decisions. Um, then the second group would be an in-depth analysis between the pro personnel people. Um, if there's a salary cap person, that person as a resource, not a decision maker. And the head coach, perhaps the coordinators, and myself about who among the free agents we had to let go. So, for example, let's say that we had four free agents who are coming out of contracts. Uh, a, a valuable tight end, a starting tight end who is one of the best in the league, a starting Sam linebacker who, while very good, only played two downs, a starting right tackle who was a red player, not blue, but, but borderline blue and solid red, played 16 games, good player, and the same starting guard, a red guard. The discussions, while not endless, would be in depth because we wanted to explore every facet of the decision. But in the end, the Sam linebacker, because he only plays two downs, and the guard because guards in our system of offense were fungible when someone else had to be paid, would be allowed to go out on the free market, and if they got an offer that exceeded what we were willing to pay, which was going to be a low amount, they would be gone. Uh, We would then attempt to sign both the tackle and the tight end we couldn't tag both, so 
you'd probably tag the tight end, but we tried very hard to get both signed before we had to use the tag. And so that would be the job of whoever the contract negotiator was. In the, in, in the case of two high-level players like that, I would take one and, and the assistant GM would take the other. And we would begin to negotiate from January until the new league year began on uh, the 9th or 10th of March. And the agents would use all that time and they would be out there trying to seek offers and so on and so forth. In most cases, we would get the player done, or if we had to, we would tag him, which would mean that you'd, you'd probably get it done at a later time. It just bought you a little more time and kept the player off the market. But the, the bottom line was, of the four who were going to free agency, we could probably only afford to keep two. And we had a formula that told us that certain positions were much more, um, uh, much larger, contrib- excuse me, contributors to our success than were others. It didn't mean the players we let go were bad players. They weren't at all. But it, the formula that we followed, which is based on metrics, told us that this particular position was more important than another position. So when you're forced to make a choice and the cap forces you to do that, that's what you do. And now the, the, the fungible positions, I kind of hate the word fungible, but it right. because it's it's so it's so inhuman. But I've started regularly using it in other ways though, mainly with things that I eat. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> yeah. Cheese cheez its have become very fungible in my life since last week's show. Yeah, that's all right. Susie Q's, things like that are fungible. Yeah, they don't matter. Um, but the uh the bottom line is it does explain exactly what's going on. And and so in that case, uh, we would wish the player well and tell him the likelihood is that we couldn't bring him back so that he ought to go start thinking about finding a job someplace else. Um, and, and so that would really take all of our effort until – right around the 1st of March. Now, the rosters opened up again after the Super Bowl, let's call it February 5th, 6th, 7th, somewhere in there. And so any players that uh, were coming back, for example, off injured reserve that we didn't want to keep or a player off the 53 that we didn't want to keep or a practice squad guy that we did not want to sign to a futures contract, that, by the way, is done immediately following the end of the season. Those guys would be formally released. Hey, Bill, Bill, could you explain explain what a futures contract is? Yeah, a futures contract is nothing more than um, a, a, a guy who signs with you during the, the 2020 league year, but the contract is for the 2021 league year. And it's allowed uh, during the dead period particularly for practice squad guys. So if you have 10 guys on the practice squad, you want to retain eight, you sign them to futures contracts, you can give them a little bit of a signing bonus, uh, and, and, and they're yours for that upcoming season. It, it's kind of a housekeeping issue. Um, most guys would like to stay. 
Uh, most agents are not voracious. They'll take uh, just enough money for the guy to live until the off-season program, and you move on and get it done. So at that point, uh, having uh, said goodbye to the free agents that you can't afford to keep, having released guys that you don't think have a future with your team, having signed the uh, practice squad guys to um, futures contracts, you're back around 60. So now you've got 30, 30 odd spots to fill. Now, I'll stop there. That's what happens during the month of January and February. Hey, Bill, one quick question with those guys. So at this phase in the process, how much communication is there from other teams calling to ask about guys that you're releasing? Is is there because in a lot of other professions, you know, if somebody's leaving you, you'll try to help him find another gig somewhere else, uh, especially if you have a good relationship or you'll have other companies call you about a certain guy. And that happens, especially with tech. How much does that happen in the league in terms of players at, at this phase of the process? Very little. Uh, in my experience, it's not until, uh, it, first of all, you can't tamper. There, there are very strong anti-tampering rules. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, Ozzie Newsom, a friend, for example, couldn't call me up and say, hey, listen, uh, we hear you might release Scott Schaefer. Um, that's tampering. You can't do that. Nor can he call Scott Schaefer's agent and say, we're hearing rumors that the Colts might release him. What do you know about that? Uh, some of that is done at lower levels of personnel, uh, over beers somewhere, uh, perhaps on the road at a college pro day or something of that nature, or, or in an all-star game. It happens all the time over beers at an all-star game. But right. it never happens formally. So uh, it's not until the player is released until his name appears on the waiver wire that any club is allowed to call and, and ask for information. Typically, they do not call and ask for a reference from front office people. The position coach at the interested team will call the position coach at the old team and ask for a a rundown, and the trainer will call the uh, at the of the interested team will call the trainer at the um, old team and ask for information. The trainers have to really be careful what they say because that information is protected, um, and so those conversations are less prevalent and less in-depth than, um, than a conversation between assistant coaches. So, for example, the trainer conversation would be, if it's, and it would have to be among a friend. I mean, you wouldn't do it with, with a division rival, for example, or a conference rival, for example. Um, but if a friend called and said, tell me about Rick Schaefer, um, the answer would be, well, as you know, I can't tell you anything, but, you know, I, I'm not worried, but we didn't have any warriors with him. And that would be as far as it would go. 
Right. That's where the real world has encroached on the NFL because we're talking about HIPAA violations there. Right. And I just want to say one other thing. I just want to say one other thing for the record. You know those beers at those all-star games when conversation flowed? Yeah. Those never happened with Mike. Those never happened with my client, Bill Polian. I just want to make that clear for the record in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> hey, as we've learned from Yellowstone, hey, Rick, were those yellow jackets you were drinking? Well, all right. Hang on. Hang, hang, on, hang on a second. Hang on a second. I, I got to say something about this. If you like Smash Mouth football and you haven't yet seen Yellowstone, you got to catch it. Kevin Costner, modern day Western, Cowboys. Horses, buck and bronx, cattle wrestlers, all kinds of assorted varmints. Bar fights. Bar fights, tons of mayhem, great stuff. Paramount Network, three seasons in the can, fourth season coming out in 2021. Big cliffhanger at the end of of season three. Check it out and and give us a shout out about what, what you think of it. For those of you who are the more cerebral kinds of listeners to our show, do not watch this show. For those of you who want to have some fun, go ahead and give it a watch. All right. So that- if you are in any way squeamish, if you are in any way squeamish or anti-violence, yes. do not watch Yellowstone. Hey, and no spoilers here, but on behalf of this podcast to Taylor Sheridan, if if that ending doesn't end happy for us, we're not going to be in a good mood at the start of next season. That's true. So, I, I must say, I, I have to tell you, Scott, I am a very, very big Taylor Sheridan fan. I like almost everything he's written. Hell or High Water is one of the greatest movies yes, of all one, time. One of, the, one, one of the great ones. One of the great ones. All right, back to the show. Uh, Yellowstone broke out there for a minute. So, Bill, you know, we're, we're at the 60, and you and I have talked about this many times. Um, but of those 60... There's about 30 who you and I have come to call the core. Who comprises the core? And tell us how that affects your sort of overall planning going forward on all levels, not just cuts, but, you know, as you imagine what you're going to be putting out on the field the next year. Well, you're always going to return, um, you hope, uh, a good majority of your core. The core is the guy's that all things being equal, meaning everybody's healthy, do the playing on a week-to-week basis. Uh, by the way, we're, we're, we're doing all of these examples pre-COVID. Post-COVID, there will be some more changes to the rosters, probably a little, you know, some reduction from what's there now. Um, I will say this, 48 on game day is here to stay. Um, don't, don't even think twice about that. But this doesn't affect um, it, this doesn't affect our discussion here. It's it's fifty three mm-hmm. and ten on the practice squad, which is right. and and ninety in camp, which is right. pre COVID and probably will be pretty close to what we have post COVID. So uh, the guys that actually do the playing are. And, and that you have to actually have healthy every week to play are as follows. Two quarterbacks, um, three running backs, but the third running back is either a specialist or a like short yardage goal line or a, a, the best special teams player, something like that, receiving back. Um, two tight ends, 
um, six offensive linemen, um, and probably four to five wide receivers, depending upon who's healthy and, and what kind, how, how, what kind of packages you use, what your offense is like. So if you're a West Coast offense, you might carry a pure Shanahan West Coast offense. You might carry an additional running back and 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 not an additional receiver. If you're the pure spread Arizona Cardinals, you'd probably have five, maybe six receivers active. So it just depends on the system. Defensively, um, if you're a 3-4, you're going to have – uh, three big people to play on running downs, um, a, a designated pass rusher, so you'll have four defensive linemen. You'll probably have uh, four to five linebackers, and you'll probably have six to seven DBs, depending on, on, on what system you use. And then the snapper, the kicker, the punter, and usually one additional guy, um, if he's Steve Tasker or if he's New England's guy on special teams, he's a game changer who plays in the all-core four, he might be that guy. It, it might be a, a, a return man like New Orleans' little guy. Um, that's the last person. So when you add it all up, depending on the system you have, that's 30 guys. Um, so... Those 30 are, are the ones that really do the playing, and those are the ones that you really, you really worry about. Um, most of the other 23, when it's all said and done, are probably low-priced young guys who've come up through the draft or collegiate free agency or a veteran who bounces from team to team but is not vested meaning he he doesn't have four years of service. Right. Um, right. So, uh, the, you know, the sixth offensive lineman might be a, a, a seven-year guy who's paid at the minimum. Uh, but the eighth is probably not. He's probably a young guy. So you're not at risk of of losing that that last 23, so to speak, and you're really worried about losing somebody from that core, but you're going to have to because, you know, the, the, the salary cap is going to force you to do so. And then there may be somebody among that core or bodies, plural, if you're not a good team, that you just say, I don't want back. We're going to cut this guy. So you focus when you go back to that original meeting at the end of January, is on dealing with the core first. That's who you deal with first, and then you deal with the, with the backups after that. Now, assistant coaches, especially with veterans who know what to do, will fight for the veteran to the, till the last dog dies, as President Clinton once said. They, they, you know, they love those veteran guys because they don't have to coach them up. You know, they, they can plug them in and play. But a lot of times they're too expensive and, and there may be injury risks and things of that nature. What I forgot to add, by the way, during the, um, the January meetings, the trainers and the doctors come in and meet them too and talk about players who 
may or may not be recovering, may or may not be injury risks. And so you, you have a complete breakdown on the guy's playing ability, his contract status, his cap status, and his medical status. So uh, just a couple of things to point out as, uh, among the things Bill mentioned. Uh, in terms of vesting under the collective bargaining agreement where various rights attach, uh, you, know, you vest when you have been on the active roster <clears throat> Excuse me, for three games each in four years. Then, then your rights change. The other thing that he mentioned, you know, in terms of planning, uh, where you have the practice squad, you you have uh, the active squad, and you have guys on IR. This came out when Bill and I were uh, in the AAF. He he taught me this uh, that the the league is is such a tough haul for people's bodies that for every game you play you are going to lose one player to IR, meaning a significant enough injury where they're going to be out for six or more weeks. So that's one of the ways Bill taught me that these non-core guys become very valuable because somebody either out of the other 23 uh, or the practice squad is going to have to step up because it's a next man up the league. But Bill, let me ask you this. It really sounds like the, the, the first major opportunity to start this uh, refurbishing problem, refurbishing opportunity, sorry, uh, is uh, free agency. Uh, the media has been hyping this for weeks, telling us about the season-changing assets that are out there and who needs them. Uh, I, I would sum up your take on this, that, that Bill Polian, I think, when he is shopping for free agents, is not... Look out there looking for the bold-faced names. I've always thought of Bill Polian as the Warren Buffett of the NFL. He is out there because he can make the, uh, the analysis that he can find otherwise undervalued assets in the market. And that's who he's going to proceed to go after when he thinks the guy is a bargain. What he's going to have to pay him is, is not what is being forced out there by just the need to sign a big name. Is that fair, Bill? No. <laughs> it's not fair. Hey, I'm not Warren Buffett. <laughs> well, I think, and, yeah, and, you know. And B, there's more to it, much more to it than that. So let's talk free agency in general. Um, and then we can, we can get into specifics. I'm sure you'll have a lot of questions about it. Um, first of all, Let's dispel a myth. The best players in the league, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, never get to free agency because the team will move heaven and earth to make sure, including using the franchise tag, tags plural, to make sure that the player doesn't leave. That's the whole purpose of the franchise tag. It was originally designed to allow Denver and Buffalo, small markets, without a lot of cash to spend, to keep John Elway and Jim Kelly. They would have to pay John Elway and Jim Kelly a king's ransom to do it. But Gene Upshaw realized that those franchises couldn't survive 
if Jim Kelly and, and, and John Elway could just run off to Denver and New York, uh, Los Angeles and New York, respectively. So that's the reason for the franchise tag. Teams do not let blue players go. Rarely, rarely, rarely. So the best players, let's call it the top 100 players, in the uh, top 50 players in the league, never make it to free agency. They don't. So by definition, you're dealing with B players, not A players. And the B players, because it's free agency and because the media just has a ball covering it, as they should, that's why, that's why Gene Upshaw wanted it. That's why every sports union leader wanted it. It's an off-season story of great proportions, which never ends and doesn't have to be factual. Think about that if you're a media person. <laughs> There's no wins and losses. There's only what your columnist says it is. There's names out there to talk about till the cows come home. There's permutations to talk about trades, deals, this, that, and the other thing that have no relation to reality. But they're fun to talk about. Witness the NBA in, in, a, in a real NBA season, a long season which ranges from November to June. What counts until June, the playoff, is nothing. Very few people watch. People aren't invested, by and large. And then after this, the playoffs are concluded, the next most interesting part of the NBA is the offseason. Not what happens on the court, what happens off it. And NBA people in, in moments of candor will tell you that. And, and the television numbers reflect that, by the way. So this is a, this is a, a, a whole new world that allows the media to thrive and fans to be engaged in what amounts to fantasy. So what the agents want you to do and, and they whip this up in the media in every sport, baseball being the most obvious one. Scott Boris is the world's greatest pitch man. I, I take that back, the world's second greatest pitch man. Uh, the, 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 uh, the amount of, of, of hot air that he puts out there during free agency <laughs> is just amazing. I mean, it's, 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 Mind blowing. Well, it's, it's we got to ask who who's number one. Uh, I'd rather not say. I'd rather not oh, say okay. because <laughs> I don't want to take. <laughs> let me put it this way: this is not a political show. So, uh, okay. yeah, that's fair. So, all of this is uh, Scott Boris and, and company and the media is perfectly legitimate. It's what free agency is designed to do which is create a market for players that is well higher than it ordinarily would be. And so as a GM, you're sitting there saying to yourself, um, you know, this player, it, 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 the agent is asking for 25% more than I think he's worth. 
And if you if you said that to the agent, the agent would say, listen, you better ante up. If you want them, you got to pay up. There's seven other teams just sitting here. That's the, essentially the Scott Boris uh, uh, pitch. And, 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 and besides which, you don't have him valued correctly. He, he's much better than you think he is. And my answer is, listen, he's played for us, for God's sake. <laughs> no, you don't have him valued correctly. And if, yeah. and if he didn't play for you, then he's really got a point there because he's going to say, oh, no, 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 no. Your evaluation is all wrong. And that is, of course, what agents are paid to do. So our position was, A, we've got some very good players on our team who are paid good salaries. We're not going to bring in a guy at a higher salary who's better, who who is less of a player than the player that we have. So our philosophy was, grow your own. The second reason for that was that we wanted to be sure that players who came to our team um, shared the values and culture that Tony Dungy or Marv Levy or Dom Capers had developed. So in expansion, you have a different dynamic at play, but once the team is created... That culture is really important. And here's where there are different ways to skin a cat. In, in the case of the Colts, we were always going to lean toward our own and try to re-sign our own and develop our own. There are other teams, the Patriots most notably, who while they certainly kept their core, were not afraid to go out and bring in players at a high price, who could fit their system, but they would make sure that those players, A, were fungible, and B, were not disruptive. So Randy Moss came in, and he played exceptionally well for them, and then he left. He didn't, he didn't get a second contract with the Patriots. Um, They're great at doing that. And that's the way Bill Belichick wants to do it. And he establishes the culture and people either march to his drummer or they march out the door, which is fine. I mean, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. We were very conservative in free agency because, A, we weren't a big cash uh, uh, rich team and B, Financial chemistry in the locker room to us was really, really important, and fit was really important. So the the pool of free agents that we would deal with in any given year, if the newspaper came out and, and, and ESPN came out and said the following are the top 50 free agents, which, which they do. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that in a second. Of those top 50... We might have interest in 15, and that would be a lot in a given year. And of those 15, 10 probably were out of our price range. So we weren't going to be very active, period. Um, the, the, the interesting part of valuing those 50 or 100, some people do the top 100, 
Um, ESPN asked me to do it when I first joined them. And I graded about 35 guys and said, these are the guys that I would have interested in. Now, there are many of those um, certain teams like the Colts wouldn't have interest in for a number of different reasons, system fit being primarily uh, the number one reason. But after 35, none of them can play. And, and the editor, who was a great guy who now works for the Washington Post, said to me, Bill, you got to rank them. I said, you could throw them all in a hat. None of them can play. (laughs) (laughs) Or if they do, they're they're, they're just marginal guys, you know, that you're going to replace in a year. And (laughs) he said, well, see what you can do to give them a ranking. So my C's, I gave C rankings to a lot, a lot of players in free agency. Because in reality, that's the way a general manager looks at it. All right, wait a second here. I, I, I... This is a point of personal privilege here. 25 years of, of being together. Here's what I meant by the Warren Buffett question. First of all, I know you're too modest to be compared to Warren Buffett. Okay. So it was an analogy, not literal. But isn't it, isn't it true, Mr. Polian, <laughs> that typically what happened in free agency when, that, when those hyped up, you know, overpriced big names came around? Yeah, you said no. And it was only in that second cycle when there were some guys left. You thought, okay, at the number where that guy is now, yeah, he's worth it. He might add something to the team. I mean, I saw you do that many times. Isn't that true? Yeah, that's that part of it is true. We we, we, right, we would awesome. never get involved in the in the early going. But right. it's more complicated than just making that statement. That was my point. I just took you through. All right, okay. All the complexities <laughs> that that are involved. Yeah, I, I plead guilty to overgeneralization and an attempt to curry favor with you by making you the sage of Omaha. <laughs> I wish I had one percent of the sage's money. So, all right. So uh, you know, uh, you probably really um, are going to only add up. You know, adding maybe. Uh, one or two guys there, right? I mean, that's that that would be it for for a big year. On average, about three when it's all said and okay. done. Okay, right. Um, so, you know, uh, we've talked about this in some earlier episodes, uh, but for purposes of this discussion, uh, so we won't go into those specifics. So just in terms of as we're bed- building back out towards the 90, you have the draft. So rather than get into it, Let's just assume you have seven picks, your full allotment of picks, and you take seven, you sign seven, um, and you bring them up to camp. Now, that leaves us to the time when there is a pool of talent which you annually, in which you annually did dive deeply. And this was undrafted college free agents. Uh, there's a lot to talk about here. So let's start with this. And i got a bunch of questions here for you, Bill. Uh, so in general, in general, are, are there contractual inv- advantages to signing undrafted free agents versus late round draft picks? Uh, yes, they're modest. Um, a late round draft pick um, is going to get more money in signing bonus than a uh, collegiate free agent. Um, actually, a collegiate free agent is probably better off uh, than a late round draft pick only because he can pick the team to which he goes, um, and and in some cases that's that's meaningful. But 
keep in mind, we're talking about ostensibly 20 to 25 roster spots here. Let me add this caveat. Toward uh, the end of our run in Indianapolis, because of roster management in the preseason and injuries, um, we decided to go to camp with anywhere between 85 and 87 players. We wouldn't go with the full 90 because we wanted to leave roster spots open if we had to add a player, as you always do during pre, uh, preseason, because of injury. We didn't want to have to cut a player at another position in order to, bring, to, to fill out a, a position that was injured. So we're, in the end, we're really talking about 85 as a, as a target number uh, when, when you go to camp. Uh, having said that, uh, the, the, you have a choice for those last, let's call them, 20 spots on the roster or 25 spots on the roster. You, you can, seven of them are coming from, from the draft. So that's, that's probably down to, uh, you know, 18 spots, uh, generally speaking. Those spots can either be filled by veterans who are on the street, non-vested, who are on the street, sometimes vested, but mostly non-vested who are on the street, who know how to prepare, who've been to a camp before, who will give you a more efficient camp, but statistically get hurt at a much higher level than do collegiate free agents and therefore cost you more money in the long run because you have to injury settle with them. You have to give them a payment to leave the roster uh, rather than sit on injured reserve. Um, and, and some of those wise old veterans, vested veterans will do what's called diving. They can cut the squad. So along about the second preseason game, when it looks like they're not going to make it, they might come up with a hamstring or a low back problem that, that costs you money in the long run. So if you're going to bring in veterans as filler, as many teams do, because it does make for a more efficient camp, uh, you're going to absorb some cost in injury settlements. We were, again, we're not a cash-rich team, and we had a lot of good players that we had to pay. So we decided that we would go the collegiate free agent route because in the long run they cost you less than the veteran who, who doesn't make your team and gets hurt. And secondly, because you might discover uh, a diamond in the rough in, in that process. So what we did was say, look, it, this is a market that's not exploited, number one. Most teams said, hey, we'll sign 10 collegiate free agents after the draft, and we'll give them $2,000 each, and everybody will be happy, and away we go. And we said, let's go find 15 to 18 to 20 that we really think have a chance to make our team based on the metrics that, that we establish. And, and we'll pay way more than that $2,000. we will we'll, we'll, we'll go $10,000 right. if necessary. So, but before you even get there, first of all, I think you know, you're, you're right. And obviously there, were, there are veterans who, who would do the football equivalent of flopping. But you, know, you also had guys, the veterans had a lot more... Uh, tire wear, right? I mean, there was more tread on the tires 
with the rookies. So, I mean, the real likelihood of them, you know, the things are, they're, they're looser, they're sprier. So the incidence of injury is probably going to be less aside from, you know, any chicanery. Uh, but I think one of the most interesting behind the scenes things with the way you operated that people don't know about was because of your interest um, in this particular pool of players, you had, a, I, I feel, a much more sophisticated, much more thoroughly prepared action plan uh, that would spring into uh, act work when the minute the draft ended and the scramble for the free agents um, would begin. Um, so aside from the money you were willing to throw aside, uh, you know, ex d describe what you set up that you would unleash on the world when that last name, Mr. Irrelevant, was named at the end of the draft. Well, first of all, the unleashing takes part, takes place long before Mr. Irrelevant. You're not supposed to do it, but conversations the, between agents and clubs take place starting about the sixth round, at the end of the sixth round. Um, hey, it's Yellow Jacket time. <laughs> yes. Although there were no yellow jackets, at least not in our room. Not 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 yet. Anyway, there are plenty after after it's all said yeah. and done, but not yet. The uh, what we did was we, we started to recruit when we found out it was a good market to be in. We started to recruit collegiate free agents and we ended up um, in, in our last years in Indianapolis sending out a video um, to everybody that that we thought was a possible collegiate free agent for us. Pretty wide distribution, close to 100, I think. Um, and it featured um, Gary Brackett, who was, a, who was a collegiate free agent who ended up being a defensive captain and playing for 10 years. Um, myself just giving an overview. And then Tony talking about how our system was really based upon egalitarianism. It, it, it didn't matter once the contract was signed, whether a guy was a first round draft choice or like Gary Brackett, the last person signed uh, on the year that he came out. Uh, and it wouldn't matter how much money you were given. Everybody was equal. And we were going to give you a chance to play in the preseason and prove yourself and a chance to make our team. So that you know, we believe in collegiate free agents. We, 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 we value you. So when, you, it, it, when you're thinking about where to go, uh, our offer will certainly be competitive. But, you know, for an extra $1,000, do you want to go to a team that wants to, you know, chew you up and spit you out and run, essentially run a tryout camp? Or do you want to come to a place where we have a place for you? We feel like you fit with us. And we'll give you every chance to make the team. So... I don't know if it worked in the long run. Um, usually uh, when agents are concerned, those, those kinds of situations don't uh, come to the fore. Money comes to the fore. So we had a setup. <coughs> Excuse me. Not, I'm sure other teams, and in fact, I'm, I'm certain other teams do it this way as well. We had a setup where we would assign a scout or front office person to a number of collegiate free agents. He would be in contact with their agents. We, we, didn't, we rarely spoke to the player unless the agent wanted us to. Um, and uh, he would be in contact with the agent, and he would say to the agent, we want uh, Scott Schaefer as a collegiate free agent, and we'll offer 5000 
to sign, and the agent would say, we've got 7,500 from Baltimore. And so that, that was a boiler room uh, in, a, in a, a room adjacent to the, uh, to the draft room with about 20 people, 15 to 20 people working in there. In the draft room, the draft is now over, are myself, the assistant GM, the personnel director, uh, and, and somebody from the accounting office who's keeping track of, of the amount of money that we're spending. And we're connected via a squawk box. So the scout would punch in and he would say to the management, oh, C- Coach Dungey was in there as well, say to the management group, um, Scott Schaefer will come for 7500 And Tony and I would look at each other and the personnel director and everybody would nod their head, would say, do it. So he would close the deal. And then an intern would take Scott Schaefer's card, put it up on the board uh, underneath the guys that, uh, that we had drafted and with the amount of money that, that we were uh, obligated to sign uh, next to it. So we'd keep a running total. That's how we, we, we filled the squad. And oftentimes during that hectic period, it goes on for about an hour or two after the draft, everybody's competing for everybody. So agents would be calling in or we would be calling agents and and we'd talk to an agent and and we'd say, we'll give Rick Schaefer, um, we'll offer him, uh, you know, 12,000. And the agent would say, no, 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 no. We got six other teams at 18. And and we say, and so then the the scout would call back and and say, agent so-and-so claims that he's got six teams at 18. So we, we, we'd look at each other and pass. So the agents would say, the, our, our scout would call the agent back and say, not interested, thanks a lot. And invariably, two hours in, that very same agent would call back and say, um, you want Rick Schaefer? You, you can have him <laughs> for that 12 we talked about. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and by that and this time, this is a deal that happens in real life all the time. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and by that time, we, we were probably filled up and we'd say, no, no, thanks. And then the agent would start to plead. Look, you know, I, I, I got to find a spot for him. You got to help me out. Uh, give me give me give me five thousand. No, no, we can't do it. We're filled up. <laughs> and sometimes you might feel sorry for the guy and give him two thousand or something like right. that. But right. it, 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 or the agent would bluff and then not want to admit the bluff. And he would go and sign because you find out what everybody signed for pretty quickly after the draft. He would go sign with somebody else. If we offered seventy five hundred, he might sign with somebody else for five and 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 tell the kid well no the Colts never offered that they just yeah you know. yeah yes and 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 at that point Rick Schaefer the client would have fired his agent and that is also why Rick Schaefer the agent never bluffed like that and if he ever were going to bluff he would never have tried to bluff Bill Polian because you're only going to go um you know, in the wrong direction and you know, but the, the thing is, Bill, uh, and I was already representing you by the time you were in Indianapolis, so I wasn't doing this with you. But my take on it was that when you you made that, you guys were, because you did believe in the pool, somebody was crazy to not accept 
what you were offering them because not only were you giving them the more money and it, and it, it, in addition to which it's stupid to chase a thousand or two thousand dollars if it's not the best opportunity but you sincerely believed in the guys you were getting you were not just taking warm bodies you know for training camps right i mean so they had the best of all worlds with you they were getting well rewarded and they really had a shot right yeah we we gave them a legitimate shot there's no question about that the, uh, and we'll talk about that as we go through the evaluation process. The interesting part of it was that there's a small subgroup of of collegiate free agents, namely quarterbacks, um, defensive rush people, and offensive tackles who can command big money in the collegiate free agent market. And And there were bidding wars that would go on. And, and we were aggressive there. I'd be the first to tell you we were aggressive. And, and I got lots of snide remarks and sometimes straight up criticism from, from colleagues around the league who would say, what are you doing? You're paying too much for these guys. And my response was, no, no, no. I think you're paying too much for, for veteran free agents. This is just our way of, of doing that at, in less costly manner. Is it driving up the market for collegiate free agents? Yeah, it is, but nowhere near what the veteran free agent market is. And, you know, most people would say, well, that's a, that's a reasonable, uh, that's a reasonable position to take. There were some people who didn't like it. And ultimately there was a rule passed that said that after a certain number, and I believe it was 25,000, I'm sure it's, it's gone up since then. But after that, um, you could not you could not pay above twenty five thousand, and 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 even then, teams evaded it. Teams that thought like we did and were a- a- aggressive because they would just guarantee part of the paragraph five and so forth and so on. But the the the, the bottom line was there: if you exceeded twenty five thousand f- for a veteran free uh, excuse me for a collegiate free agent. Um, you were uh, penalized in, in some way. I, it came off the cap or something. like. I can't remember exactly what the stricture was. But they tried, the management council tried to put a stop to, uh, you know, this what they considered wild bidding. And, and I must admit that um, whoever the person was in, in the draft room who was counting the expenditures w- would be, you know, when we did a deal, let's say, for, 20,000 for a collegiate free agent whose name he didn't know and never heard of. I mean, he would physically blanch, you know, some color would drain from his face. (laughs) But in the end, we spent, we were spending cap money. It was not outside the cap in any way. And the cash we were expending was really less for more bodies then it costs you to go and, and, and dabble even in the second or third tier of veteran free agency. It was just making a value judgment. And, you know, and, and there were legit guys that, that came out. I mean, you know, that even some blue players that came out of that, uh, that collegiate free agent group, you know? I mean, it, was, it wasn't like— There oh, you know, always are. There always are. Yep. But then, so this is probably an armchair stupid fan question. So there are no stupid fan questions. That's what we're here for. 
Wait a minute. That's what Scott's here for. Here's a stupid Scott question. So how much of that is impacted? Because from an armchair philosophy, my theory would be veteran players probably don't like to play special teams or maybe aren't as effective at playing special teams. So in building out your 90-man roster, especially with these uh, undrafted college free agents, that's where you can find more gems who can help you on teams, uh, who could be more effective players on teams. How much did that and your sort of philosophy on special teams impact, one, college free agents, but then two, how you looked at the construction of the 90-man roster? Roster. That's a great question. Um, first and foremost, our defensive system, Dungey defense, which is based on speed, athleticism, and striking power, um, should provide the core of your core four special teamers, absent the returners. So the, the defensive system made you better on special teams. Secondly, the, the, the core four, punt, punt, return, kickoff, kickoff, return, are, are basically space plays. So you're going to eliminate largely um, big people, and now the rule of, of no wedges eliminates those guys almost totally. So you're dealing with a universe of space players. Now, receivers... Certainly, starting receivers want no part of special teams. Right. Um, <laughs> veteran backups know that they have to play, but they're you know they're not usually not lining up to do it. Steve Tasker is a notable exception who belongs in the Hall of Fame, but other than that, you know I can't think of many who line up to do it. And and the same is true of running backs. Um, Defensive players a little di- a little different. They they recognize that that they have to do it to earn a living. Um, so in our case, the system on defense helped us get better special teams players. But there's no question that eager, bright-eyed rookies are more than willing to try and make their mark on special teams during the preseason. And that's where you find guys. If a guy excels on special teams as a rookie, the likelihood is he's got a pretty good chance to play in the league, a strong chance to play in the league. So in that sense, your theory is correct, and it's one reason why we did it. Um, But in some cases, again, ours is is not the only way to skin a cat. Um, Coach Levy believed that the last player at every position ought to be a solid special teams contributor. And he would keep a lesser running back, for example. Uh, He'd let a a better running back go because the lesser running back was a contributor on special teams. And and that's the Patriots, for example, with Bolden. Uh, That's probably a name unless you're – unless you either play against the Patriots or you're a Patriot fan right, yeah. that, that, right. that you don't know. But, but Bolden is, is a, a running back who rarely carries the ball, but, but he's, a, he's a tremendous special teams player. Nate Ebner rarely played on defense, but he's a great special teams player. He was a rugby player, by the way. He didn't play college football, I don't believe. He was a rugby player at Ohio State. Um, Slater... 
is, of course, the most famous name. He's the latter day Steve Tasker, uh, who who is listed as a receiver. But I'm not sure he, he catches more than a couple of passes a year, but he plays right. on every special team. So um, your point is is well taken. There are different ways to create that person on the roster. But collegiate free agency statistically is 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 one, is a proven way to do it. All right, so one more 90-man roster construction before we jump into the Audible. And I don't know when we'll get to talk about this again, so I think it would be fun to kind of jump into it here. In terms of your 90-man roster, how how much does your practice squad construction play into who you pick for the 90-man? And then also, because I think there's it's it's evolved, could you walk us through how practice squads work in terms of player movement from the main roster back down to the practice squad and then people's ability to actually poach players off of your practice squad? The, the latter part of that question is probably better covered in, in our next show because it's cool. part and parcel of how you construct the 53. In terms of the uh, 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 of how you construct the 85, if you will, uh, I, I would sit down with the head coach uh, in January and say, here's our roster now. How many running backs do we want in camp? How many quarterbacks do we want in camp? How many wide receivers do we want in camp? And then we'd revisit that about once a month based on primarily injuries or what might have happened in, in, in free agency. And then uh, as we, you know, maybe two weeks before the draft, we would sit down and say, here's the roster now. What do we think the numbers ought to be for camp? And those are the numbers that we would work to fill. We had a huge roster board, which had everybody on the, on the roster listed by position. So we could visually sit there in the draft room and see how many guys we had at every position. So, for example, if if one of the scouts called in during collegiate free agency and said, hey, you know, uh, John Jones is the best receiver that's out there. His numbers are terrific, um, and, and we can get him for ten grand. that They can't find a home for him. Do um, you want to go for him? And, and we'd look at the list and say, well, we've we, we got ten wide receivers now. Tony said, well... If you think he's that good, let's say always we'll, we'll find another way to get to, uh, you know, 90. Go ahead and sign him. So that's what we would do. And then at the end of OTAs, we would go ahead and, and cut the roster to 85 or 86, however, however many we wanted to go to camp with. So we've built our way to what was theoretically 90, but in Bill's case is 85. And as promised, we will take you back through the process of getting back to the 53 plus the others. But that is going to happen on next week's episode. So tune in and we will take a deep dive into that at the time. Scott, are we on to the audibles? We are on to the audible. All right. So I have the first audible question today. So then, Bill, uh, with the new CBA, COVID, can you walk us through what the new rules will be and what you think will happen in terms of roster size and what that will mean for practice squads and how many players you can bring to camp, how many players you can have available on game day uh, moving into next season, but then also with, as we mentioned earlier in the show with COVID, how that might impact roster size moving forward. 
Well, next season, we don't know. The competition committee will revisit that based on what happened this year and where we are with COVID. So that's a that's an open question that is foolish to speculate on. This year, there are major roster changes. So you could go to camp with 90, and, and most teams did. Now they cut to 53, uh, but the practice squad has been expanded to 16 players. So from 10 to 16. Uh, those players can be brought up, any, any player from the practice squad can be brought up to the active roster up to 90 minutes before kickoff. And if he's replacing a player who tested positive for COVID, he can go back down to the practice squad without ever going through waivers. And in any given week, you can protect four practice squad players who are unpoachable. No team may come and get them. So that's the, that's the practice squad situation as it exists now. Brand new and, and not likely to remain that way, by the way, uh, post-COVID. Uh, injured reserve has been expanded greatly and the process, the, the 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 process of putting a player on injured reserve uh, prior to this meant that he had to have a major injury, which meant six weeks or more on the shelf. Now teams did stash players with less than a major injury, but not a lot. In fact, rarely. Uh, now you do not have to have a major injury, and you only have to stay on the injured list for three weeks before you can be elevated to the active roster. And there's no number, no uh, uh, number, finite number of people uh, that can come back during a year. Last year, you could only bring two guys back off injured reserve. The whole idea is to prevent stashing of healthy players on injured reserve, uh, which cash risk teams benefit by doing. So uh, the, now, stashing is effectively legal. I, there'll be a big fight about keeping that where it is. The coaches are going to want it. The general managers are going to want it. The owners, not so much, because it's costly. Right. Here's the most important change that I don't think will change. We've crossed the Rubicon with this. You can dress 48 people on game day, provided you carry eight offensive linemen into the game. And now that guy has to be a bona fide offensive lineman. We can argue about, and we'll look at during the season, how people fudge that. They will. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that 48 active is going to be the norm from here on out. Once the coaches have 48, they ain't never giving it back. Pardon my <laughs> English. <laughs> uh you know, Bill, you actually, uh, I got one for you, but let me just do a little follow-up on Scott. Um, you actually advocated that we take, uh, raise it to 20 for the practice squad just because you wanted right competent guys to still be available if, say, a team got hit hard by corona, right? 
I did, but the but, but the I, I forgot to add one thing about the practice squad. By the way, there used to be a limit on who you put on the practice squad in terms of service time. No vested veteran could go on the practice squad, and then gradually it loosened up to where you could have one. Now there is no eligibility requirement for the practice squad. A vested veteran who's 10 years in the league, if he's willing to accept a practice squad contract, can go ahead and be on the practice squad. The reason I advocated for 20 was simple. I I wanted to make sure that every position group was covered in the event of uh, of a disaster under COVID. But now with the injured reserve uh, being liberalized, uh, that serves the same purpose. I would not have been in favor of liberalizing the injured reserve. I would have been in favor of just doing a flat-out 20 um, practice squad, but I'm not on the well, I'm not on the yeah. on the regular competition committee, right. and the committee that I'm on doesn't doesn't have jurisdiction over that. So, yeah, I mean, yours yours makes way more sense because that's a much more fair and honest way to do it. I mean, the other way you'll wind up with stashing, which anybody who's unfamiliar with the term is, you know, you're taking a guy who doesn't have what what before was a legitimate six-week injury and claiming he's on there. This way, you just put the guy on the practice squad, uh, you know, and and you're you're being honest uh, to your fellow teams. I mean, I think your way is a lot better. Well, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people who feel otherwise. And by the way, with stashing... um, we are all, as general managers, guilty of doing it at some point in our career. It, no one is free of sin when it comes to that. So <laughs> it's not a good thing, <laughs> but we're all guilty uh, uh, at some point or another. All right. Let me say again, on behalf of my client, Bill Polian, the statute of, statute of stashing limitations has run. So I don't want to hear from anybody out there who wants to bring a claim against Bill Pauley. All right, moving on to, to <laughs> moving on to my question, uh, and and uh, let's go back to the present. Uh, with apologies to Marty McFly, seeing as we're making uh, references to the media these days. Um, what we we just all watched uh, the we got to the first week of the NFL. The three of us just watched it on as did everybody on TV. Any. Main takeaways, Bill. Oh, wow. Um, in, in, you know, incredibly good, incredibly good football. Uh, much better than I would have expected and much better than most people that I had spoken to within the game expected. Um, secondly, uh, if this keeps up, and I have no reason to believe it won't unless the rosters are decimated either by injury or, or uh, uh, COVID. You're going to have to question very strongly whether you want OTAs. Do they contribute to better football? Because based on at least the marquee games yesterday and Thursday, and we'll see uh, uh, tonight, it doesn't. So that's going to be a, a coaches are going to want the OTAs. Coaches want to coach. But in terms of getting <laughs> your team to the to the to the opening game healthy, uh, in, in terms of, of of making sure that everybody's ready to play, uh, we didn't have an offseason program and we didn't have OTAs and we didn't have mini camps. 
And we had darn good football over the weekend, darn good football. The other takeaway, having watched my son, uh, my, my son's team, uh, he's on the staff at Notre Dame, uh, and some other college games, and not having preseason, uh, I had forgotten how much more physical, intense, uh, skilled, and ferocious the NFL is compared to college. When you watch the two of them back-to-back, there isn't any comparison. And the reason that people think there is a comparison is because when there are 100,000 people in the stands waving uh, old alma mater's flag and 350 bands people playing and the cheerleaders cheering, the pageant covers up the fact that the difference between the games is day and night. Men versus boys. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. College missed the fans more than probably anything else I, I've seen thus far. Uh, yeah, I've always felt in many ways the college experience is more about the fans. It's more about the crowds. It's more about the pregame than it was the game itself, that they brought the zest to you know what was so special about college football. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a, it's a different it's a different animal, but the bottom line is that in terms of efficiency, uh, ferocity, competitiveness, skill level, there's no comparison. Yep, not at all. Well, hey. Well, thank you uh, guys for an awesome show today. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Thank you, Coach Rivera, because I got hope going into week two as well. So, uh, you know, I got mocked a little bit last week by my friends for uh, having hope about the season. But uh, pretty good. You didn't get mocked by your broadcast partner. Yeah. I did not get mocked by my broadcast partners, but my real life friends, you know, you you guys know who you are. Shame on we, you. We told you that Ron Rivera was good. <laughs> exactly. Your your broadcast partners are always more important than real friends anyway. And speaking of somebody who who doesn't look like a college kid anymore, Chase Young is a physical freak. He is, without question. I mean, fair to say. Fair to say. Bodied up. All right, guys. Well, thanks for an awesome show. Absolutely. I let's just say Stay safe and well out there, buckaroos. And remember Yellowstone. All right, gang. <laughs> Stay safe. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.